0: Psalm 139. This sermon is going to be a topical sermon, but we're going to be camping out during the entirety of this sermon on the sanctity of life in this psalm. Here now the words of the Lord from Psalm 139. It says this. For the choir director, a psalm of David. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn, And settle down on the western horizon. Even there, your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me. And the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, How precious your thoughts are to me. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. God, if only you would kill the wicked. You bloodthirsty men, stay away from me. Who invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate you those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you i hate them with extreme hatred i consider them my enemies search me god and know my heart test me and know my concerns see if there is any offensive way in me lead me in the everlasting way God, we pray this morning that you would turn our hearts to be able to hear wondrous things from your word. We cannot understand it without your help. Our ears would be closed. Our hearts would be hard. Our attitude would be distant and apathetic. We need your help this morning. So we ask God that you would help us by the power of your spirit to see and understand your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been 48 years since Roe v. Wade has been legalized, legalized abortions in the United States. And the case against abortion is complex. Discussions around biology Theology and political ideology have made the issue a whirlwind of controversy. So why do we take a Sunday every single year to talk about this issue of abortion? Why spend time on it? I have three reasons. Firstly, because abortion is still a pressing issue. Because abortion is still a pressing issue. Roe v. Wade was believed to be the end of the abortion discussion. But despite the longevity of this ruling, the debate continues to rage on. And yet, since this decision that was made by the U.S. Supreme Court, over 60 million abortions have been performed in the United States. Over 40,000 since the beginning of this year. Reason number two. Because a church is to be equipped to engage the culture because the church is to be equipped to engage the culture. Whatever culture you're in, God desires for you to understand it and to be well-equipped to be able to engage it. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4 instructs us to demolish arguments and to take every thought captive to obey Christ. That means our duty as Christians isn't necessarily to, to raise arms But to deliver thoughts, to engage in the discussion. Reason number three because abortion has been a dark, shameful elephant in the room for many churches, including our own. According to the Guttmacher Institute, two thirds of women who get abortions identify as Christians. They identify as christians and a fifth of them identify as evangelical do you understand what that means that means in 2020 over 100,000 abortions that were performed were performed on christians who profess to believe the bible that attend church and profess to believe the gospel there are likely women here this morning sitting among us who have had abortions and the guilt, the shame of sin and the siren of silence has paralyzed the church from being able to show the grace of Christ. So my desire for us this year as we think about this topic is to have a biblical understanding of how abortion opposes the glory of God. I mean, distinguish what I'm trying to do this morning. I'm not trying to give a comprehensive defense for the sanctity of life or why a fetus is a person. I'm presuming those things to be true. What I'm trying to do this morning is disciple us in thinking about why a Christian in particular ought to oppose abortion in a way that is different from even an atheist who would understand abortion to be murder. If the chief goal of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever, abortion inhibits us from the enjoyment of God and robs him of his glory. That's the primary reason why we oppose abortion. Yes, we oppose it because we believe that's the murder of a human being. But any reason that we have for opposing abortion is rooted most fundamentally On the foundation of the glory of God. If you lose that sight, then your Jenga tower doesn't have a table to sit on. God's glory is that foundation upon which we base any opposition to sin. And it's the reason why we oppose abortion. That's going to be the main idea this morning. Or main command. Oppose abortion because it opposes the glory of God. Oppose abortion because it opposes the glory of God. You may have noticed that this morning you were handed a a handout. If you didn't, then someone should be shuffling through with tons of loose-leaf paper. Uh, You'll see three columns. What we're going to do first is we're going to look at the attributes of God as outlined in this psalm. After that, We're going to look at how abortion as a sin particularly opposes those attributes of who God is. How it tarnishes our understanding of God and thereby taints his glory. And then we'll look at Christ in light of God and the sin. So we'll start with that first column. Who God is. Who God is. Firstly, God is omniscient. God is omniscient. Let's look at verse 1. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. God is all-knowing. He has searched us and he's known us. He knows when we sit down and when we stand up. The Library of Congress And all of humanity can research and obtain endless amounts of information and knowledge. Google can aggregate the information of the masses and likely your personal data. And still be a floppy disk compared to the comprehensive knowledge of God. Secondly, God is eternal. God is eternal. Verse 4. Before a word is on my tongue. You know all about it, Lord. Before a word is even on our tongue, God knows it. He knows everything. He knows every single word that's going to come out of my mouth. He was, he is, and he is to come. He has no beginning. He simply is. Nothing surprises God. Three, God is incomprehensible. guys. incomprehensible. Verse 6, this wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. We're not able to comprehend God. He's incomprehensible. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't know him truly, as though everything that we know about God has this angle of, of lie to it or deceit to it. It just means that we can't know him completely. We can't know him completely. I mean, to some of us, some of our family members seem incomprehensible. Imagine trying to know God in his entirety. It's beyond us. We can't reach it. Number four, God is omnipresent. God is omnipresent. Verse seven, where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely, the darkness will hide me. and The light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike you. God is everywhere. You can't hide from him. He's present in the furthest expanses of the universe, and he's present here in this parking lot. Number five, God is sustainer. God is a sustainer. Let's look again at verse 9 and 10. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. God holds us. Colossians 1.17 says that by Jesus, all things hold together. He sustains all things. This isn't just God setting things in motion and then letting go. Every second of existence is being held by the hands of God. So God is sustainer. Number six, God is sustainer. Creator, God is creator. Verse 13. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. God is the one who creates us. He personally knits us in our mother's womb. Only God can create like this. All life comes from God because God is life. Number seven, God is omnipotent. God is omnipotent. This is also part of this section that we can see here that God can do all things. God can do all things. Everything that God does... Everything that happens on the earth happens by God's power. He empowered life to be able to happen. He's the one who breathed life to us so that we can function. To have neuron receptors that are receiving the sound waves from my voice, from these speakers, to your ears, to your brain, so that you can comprehend what I'm saying or to realize that you're lost, which is okay. He's able to create us. And God can create out of nothing. Number eight. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Verse 16. Your eyes eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God reigns over all things. Not only did he see us when we were formless, he actually planned all of our days in his book before they even began. I mean, he planned every single day. He planned that you'd sit here and hear this sermon this morning. He planned for me to stand here and wonder if I'm cold or too hot because half of my body is in the sun. He planned all things. He reigns over all things. Number nine, God is precious or he's good. Verse 17, God, how precious your thoughts are to me. Do you think of God as precious? David is describing God here, not just as a good God, even though he certainly is, but that God is valuable to him, that he's precious to him. God is cherishing, or David is cherishing God's thoughts here, that God is a delight to him. That when he thinks about God's thoughts, when he thinks about God, he actually enjoys it. Thinks about God and who he is, and he delights in God. And that's because God is good. I think about the things that you enjoy in life. You know, when I sit around, and I hear other guys talking about sports and LeBron James this and Harden to the Nets of that. I don't enjoy it at all. And it's because I don't like Basketball. I'm sure if I did, I'd enjoy it, but I don't. But if you talk to me about video games or about gaming computers or different technology, I'm right there. I can talk about that stuff for hours. Yeah, I see that hand. Um, The things that you enjoy, you'll delight thinking about. And here, David is delighting in God because God is good. His thoughts are precious to him. Number 10. Lastly, God is infinite. God is infinite. Let's go back to verse 17. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. God is immeasurable. He is the maximum of everything. We might have knowledge, but he is knowledge. We might have good things or do good things, but God is goodness. If we compared our little sandcastles of knowledge to his, we would be absolutely buried in infinite mounds of sand. So God is infinite. Now, why do we just spend so much time On the attributes of God. Because of verse 14. I will praise you. Because I have been remarkably. And wondrously made. Your works are wondrous. And I know this. Very well. And earlier in verse 13. It talks about being knit in the mother's womb. Many people will read. Verse 14. As this kind of warm fuzzy. God loves me. And he did this for me kind of way. And that. I'm the one who's being fearfully and wondrously made here. And, and don't get me wrong, that, that is true. God tender, tenderly loves us. And it it's a beautiful thing that he's done. But when we read this psalm in its entirety, when we, when we meditate on each part of this psalm, we realize that this psalm really isn't about us. It's not about you. It's about God. Verse 14 is about God and who he is. The reason why we're remarkably and wondrously made is because God is remarkable and wondrous. The stuff that he does is remarkable and wondrous. And because he's the one who makes us, that's what makes us remarkably and wondrously made. Human dignity is grounded in who God is, not who we are. Which means that even when we advocate for life, It is primarily grounded in who God is, not who we are. That's what makes Christians' advocacy for life different than people who aren't Christians. Because we recognize a dignity in humanity that goes deeper than the person. That every single human being is a mirror reflection of the character of the glory of God. Which means that to abort a child infringes on God's authority at every level. At every level. Let's go to column two sin. What happens when we deny God here? Begin to believe lies about who God is. That's what happens. So you'll see some horizontal correlations here as we walk through. Firstly, So it makes us believe that God does not understand my situation. That God doesn't understand my situation. Now, I haven't been a woman. I don't think I'll ever be a woman. And God the Father hasn't either. So he can't possibly understand where I'm coming from. He doesn't know me. What does that do? It denies God's omniscience. So God is not omniscient. Number two. God is dated. God is dated. God just is not progressive enough. Modern times are different than before. Can we really say that whatever this archaic God says about life over 3,000 years ago still applies today? God's words ought to have some kind of expiration date, right? Some kind of re-upping. So what happens is that God isn't eternal. Thirdly, this situation is too complex. This situation is too complex. Many can feel overwhelmed by their circumstances and view abortion as the only way. We'll talk more about that later. But in the moment, the situation may press someone to look to abortion as the only solution. And that situation to that person may feel incomprehensible. That it's overwhelming. So think about those Those 20% of people that profess to be evangelicals. They know what God says. And then you think that this situation is just too complex given the circumstances. So circumstances supplant God's commands. And God isn't Incomprehensible. It becomes dismissible. Number four, I can hide from God. I can hide from God. No one has to know. I can get away with this. It'll be one day. I'll I'll come in and I'll go ahead and get this taken care of. Out of sight, out of mind. And so God is omni isn't is omnipresent. Number five, God has abandoned. God has abandoned me. I might feel like you're all alone. No one can help me. This is my problem and God has left me. Maybe you feel like you're beyond saving. And God has turned his back on you already. So God is no longer a sustainer. Number six. This is my body. This is my body and this is my life. As though... The life you currently possess wasn't given to you as a gift. So God isn't creator, we are. And because we're the creator, we get to uncreate as we please. Number seven. I can do what I want. I can do what I want. My way or the highway. I have complete control over my destiny. I can choose what I want to do. So God isn't powerful enough to stop me. So he's not omnipotent. Number eight. No one can tell me what to do. No one can tell me what to do. No one has the authority to tell me what I must do with my life and my body. This is my sphere. So I am king over my own life and God is no longer sovereign. Number nine, God is not as good as blank. God is not as good as blank. God just isn't as good as my career. Or what my boyfriend wants. Or my reputation among my family. Or my reputation at my church. These are things I just can't give up. So God isn't good number 10 god is not enough god is not enough he isn't capable of pulling me through he couldn't save me he's not satisfying there's this void that i need to fill that he can't so god is no longer infinite can you see from these 10 points how abortion directly opposes those 10 attributes of who god is it takes God's authority. It takes his character. It attempts to usurp it. It's no wonder that David states in verse 19 through 22, God, if only you would kill the wicked. You bloodthirsty men, stay away from me. i invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you? And detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. In light of who God is, this is not an overreaction. David rightly captures the disgusting wickedness of sin. God hates those who do evil. Psalm 5 says that God abhors all evildoers. Which means that God hates those who have had abortions. Which means that God hates sinners. If we're being honest, that means that God should hate all of us. I mean, when I read those lies, in the entire second column in violation of God's character, have any of those excuses resonated with you? Do you hear those and think, I've thought that before? That's because the root of all sin, regardless of whether or not it's abortion, adultery, greed, or anything that we could ever do in rebellion against God, is unbelief. And because of our unbelief, we deserve to die. We are bloodthirsty men, we are the wicked. We are the enemies of God. So what do we do? How do we reconcile bloodthirsty, rebellious enemies of God? You're the person and work of Christ. If you're not a Christian, this is the next sixty seconds are really what you should be listening to. That the only way that you can take your bloodstained, rebellious Wicked self before God is through the person and work of Christ. Jesus did not only know the sinful state of humanity, he took on the nature of man himself. He became a man, was born of a virgin, and lived a sinless life that we never could. He never doubted God. He didn't have an inkling of unbelief in his soul, and he lived perfectly. And we, in turn... Took him, and tried to kill him, and he suffered on a Roman cross, like a criminal. And as he hung on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God. He received the punishment that us bloodthirsty, rebellious enemies deserve to have, and he took it on his own shoulders. God asked uh, David asked God to slay the wicked. And God slayed his son. And Jesus died. But three days later, he rose from the dead. Victorious over sin and death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Christ has won victory over sin and death, which means that Christ is the remedy to all sins. To all sins. Let's look at the third column. What does Christ do? What does Christ do? Firstly, Christ understands us. Christ understands us. In fact, he has had firsthand experience through the tragic effects of sin. He suffered it for us. Hebrews 4 says that we don't have. A mediator who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but has been tested in every way that we have, yet without sin. Christ understands us. Number two, the grace from Christ is eternal, everlasting to us. The grace from Christ is eternal, everlasting to us. He doesn't give us dated rules and regulations. He gives us a permanent solution. For all of our violations. And that's why we have hope. Your grace in this life doesn't have an expiration date. We have a hope beyond our sins in this life. Our old self is wasting away. If you want assurance about this unchanging grace, look to who God is. God's payment for your sin is infinite. Everlasting, eternal. Put your hands to redemption's side. His scars are bigger than any doubts of mine. Number three. God does the incomprehensible through Christ. God does the incomprehensible through Christ. God took on the insurmountable problem of sin and fixed it himself. God himself becomes man. And gives himself up for sinners. This is the mystery. That angels long to see the solution to. If God can take care of your sin problem. Then he can provide for any problem that you may face in this life. It may not be the solution that you're looking for. But you can rest assured. That God only ever does what's best for his children. Number four. You can try to hide from God, but Christ came to us. Christ came to us. He meets us where we are. Like the Samaritan woman who, who was with five different men in John 4. Jesus eats with drunks and, and tax collectors. He didn't come to earth seeking to s- throw a sledgehammer at anyone who sins against him he came as a physician as a doctor ready to heal number five god has not abandoned us because christ came to save us because christ came to save us he is our hope in every trial number six christ lays down himself for us christ lays down himself for us While we selfishly try to claim autonomy over our own lives, Christ descended from his throne to us. Number seven, similar to that, Christ humbled himself. Christ humbled himself. He wasn't after a power grab. Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Number eight. Christ submitted to the will of his Father. Christ submitted to the will of his Father. Even if it meant his own death. Even if it meant his own death. Number nine. Christ is the most precious gift we could ever receive. Christ is the most precious precious gift we could ever receive. He's sweeter than convenience. He's better than anything this world can offer. And you can indulge in Christ for the rest of your life, and his goodness will never run out. In fact, your appetite for him will only grow. Number 10. God is not enough. Christ is everything to us. Christ is everything to us. He's all to us. Therefore, based on this third column, there is grace and forgiveness in Christ. His blood spilled for us cleanses us from all our sins. Christ forgives those who have had abortions. Christ forgives the sexually immoral, the liars, the idolaters, The swindlers, all Christians have been forgiven despite the despicableness of our own sin. Don't let sin's bitterness overwhelm you. Don't let it repel you from Jesus. Instead, see the goodness of Christ and go to him. And go to him. What can we do in light of the stuff that we just overviewed? Three sections for us. Firstly, fight sin personally. Fight sin personally. Three three little sub points to each of these. Firstly, fight to taste God's goodness every day. Fight to taste God's goodness every day. Look for moments in your life that you can recognize and train yourself to see God's goodness in them. Thomas Watson has said that until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Christ will not be sweet. I want to flip that phrase. I kind of want to reverse it. I want to say that until Christ is sweet, sin will not be bitter. Sin will not be bitter. It's like brushing your teeth and then biting an orange. Right? When you are cleansed by the cleaning blood of Christ, and you look back to sin, it doesn't taste good anymore. It's bitter to you. The fight of the Christian against sin isn't just to reject sin, but to say that Jesus is better. Number two, repent of self-righteousness or apathy. Repent of self-righteousness or apathy. Do you have a gracious demeanor when people sin? Or do you, Slam the hammer of justice. Do you gospelize people in their brokenness? Or do you avoid difficult conversations because they're a nuisance to you? We can all grow in our humility and our empathy. Number three, educate yourself. Educate yourself. I can't thoroughly answer every single objection to the pro-life cause in 45 minutes trying to Answer people's objections is kind of like playing a game of whack-a-mole. You hit one, another objection pops up, and you just keep going. So research it. Read Why Pro Life, which we have in our bookstall, which you could ask PGRI to provide for you by Randy Alcorn. Read different articles on the sanctity of life. Equip yourself so that you can take every thought captive to Christ and bring him glory. Second section here, fight sin corporately. White sin corporately. Firstly, repent of self-righteousness as a church. Repent of self-righteousness. How often do we get caught up with how quickly our, uh, the culture is being corrupted? You might hear phrases like, this country is going to hell in a handbasket. Do we ever take the disposition of Daniel Asking God to forgive us, plural, first person, us, for our sins. This isn't just the wrongdoing of some people in this country. This is our responsibility. They're our sins. Number two, pray for our country to change, like we did just earlier in the prayer petition. I mean, do we pray about this issue? Do our hearts break over the loss? of human life. We're going to pray about this most likely even tonight in our evening service. I hope you can join us and pray together. Number three. Cultivate a community of grace where sin can be confessed and grace can be applied. Cultivate a community of grace where sin can be confessed and grace can be applied. How would our church deal with a pregnancy out of wedlock. Think about it. How would our church deal with it? How we deal with a woman who confesses to have had an abortion? Do you realize what's happening for those one in five who claim to be evangelicals who have abortions? They are so terrified by the prospect of public shame humiliation, or life circumstances that they've considered the death of a child. God forgive that we brand brothers and sisters in Christ with a scarlet A for abortion. We are all like scarlet. Christ has washed us white as snow. So to anyone who's listening to this sermon who have had abortions, we're sorry. We want to weep with you. Care for you. And love you. Help us as a church to be able to walk with you. Talk to people that you trust. Different members of this church. And and have conversations about this. That's fighting sin corporately. Lastly, fight sin publicly. Fight sin publicly. The reason why this is last is because if we do this first we can advocate against abortion with a christless disposition you can fight for righteous things in wicked ways and we want to make sure that we avoid that so three things that we could do publicly firstly advocate against abortion advocate against abortion i'm not going to get into specific particulars because God may be pressing your conscience to advocate against abortion in different ways. right? But grow in your awareness of what's going on. Read the data. There are pregnancy centers or, or women's health centers are, are, are performing abortions right in this city. I mean, there's one right next to Chick-fil-A on Firestone. Be aware of that. I mean, one of the things that I grew up in awareness this week was I was... I was on Twitter, I read from a man that for every one abortion clinic that started since Roe v. Wade, Christians have started two pregnancy crisis centers. That was really interesting to me. I didn't know that. Right? Grow in your awareness of these things and pray for the souls that inquire about these abortion clinics or about Christian women's pregnancy crisis centers and, and pray for them to be equipped and served. Uh, be ready to serve. Pray that people wouldn't consider abortions. Consider how God may be calling you to be able to serve in those areas. Number two, consider fostering or adoption. Consider fostering or adoption. It's hard to think of something that you can do in this Christian life that more accurately depicts the beauty of the gospel. I mean, isn't that the good news for us as Christians? That God took rebels and not only forgave them, but adopted them into the family of God? I mean, when when people talk about the amount of children that are in the system, the children that lack parents, that need care, as arguments against abortion, they have a point. Now, this in no way justifies the the systematic evil that's happening in this country. But we as Christians should have empathy to both ends. We want to care for for children inside the womb as, as well as outside of it. God has done the opposite of aborting in adopting us as children. So consider whether or not God may be calling you to foster or adopt children in your own family. Number three, oh, and, and quickly with number two, there are a number of families at this church who have fostered or adopted. Talk with them. I don't want to name any of them because I don't want to call them out, but talk with them. Consider what that looks like. Number three, share the gospel with the broken. Share the gospel with the broken. At the end of the day, the fight against abortion doesn't culminate at the voting booth, but at the throne of grace. Share the gospel. Don't just convince people not to murder. Show them the beauty of Christ. Show them the glories of the gospel. And that's where we can start to see real change. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts break at the thought of so many souls who have been lost over this tragic sin. We pray, God, that you forgive us as a country for our rebellion against you. Pray, God, that you would be merciful to us. Help us as a church to be equipped to be able to meet the needs of people who are considering this sin, for people who have already acted on this sin, and to be able to love all the neighbors of our community and the members of this church, to be able to equip ourselves with the grace of Christ to be able to combat this sin. We thank you, Lord, for the abundant grace of Christ. Even now, as we meditate on your goodness with the Lord's Supper, we thank you that the gospel can take the deepest sins in our own heart and wash them completely clean by the immeasurable grace of Christ. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a minute now, or actually a few minutes, to share what God pressed on you from the preaching of God's Word, from Psalm 139, or any other verses that were quoted. So go ahead and take a minute now to share with someone around you uh, a thought, comment, something God pressed on you. If you're a guest here, feel no obligation to share, just introduce yourself to someone and listen in on a conversation, and if members can just be aware of others who might not have someone to share with. Go ahead and take the next few minutes to, to do that now. Thanks.